G'day everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Under the Week. I'm Alex DeRosso. And I'm Alex Manning. Just in case you were wondering, we are brought to you by MSLS and the College of Law. Law school is only the first step to admission, the next step, practical legal training. The College of Law provides the largest range of flexible practical legal training programs in WA. Visit collaw.edu.au to learn more. That's C-O-L-L-A-W.edu.au. So uh, we're very pleased to be joined today by uh, Lauren Butterley, who we think is one of the uh, most fascinating guests we've had on this podcast so far. Yes, Lauren has been a judge's associate, a solicitor and an academic. While she was practicing as a solicitor, she was also diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, She is now working in the fast-growing area of environmental law and has just completed her PhD. Lauren, uh, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Uh, Lauren, you you graduated from uni with first-class honours, but it seems like you've uh, never been one for what some people might call a traditional legal pathway. I know that's a a phrase you don't particularly like. So firstly, uh, why don't you like it? And secondly, what attracted you away from it towards environmental and uh, native title law? Yeah, that's a really um, good question. And I guess um, I'm not a particular fan of the term traditional legal pathway because I don't think there is one traditional legal pathway. And I think that there is lots of opportunities with a law degree to follow the different passions that you have and lots of different ways to do that. Uh, I was really interested in history and politics and society. And uh, as alongside my law degree, I did a Bachelor of Arts in history that focused on Indigenous history and environmental history and Australian political history. So the areas of law that I've gone into, environmental law, administrative law and native title uh, were a natural fit for my areas of interest. Um, And I still use my history degree uh, every day in my life um, as a lawyer to understand different contexts. Um, I also wanted to get out of the city. I have predominantly worked in cities, but I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to see some of Australia and the world. Um, and I didn't always want to work behind a desk. Sky prisons, so... some might call them. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely, I didn't want to be um, always in the city and I didn't want to always be behind a desk. Um, and my various um, jobs and also actually some internships while I was at um, university have taken me to the Kimberley, uh, to remote wow. Arnhem Land, to the Torres Strait in Queensland, which was amazing, oh, wow. um, and even to Canada's Indigenous um, Territory of Nunavut, um, where I experienced minus 45 degrees. And I, I my law degree has taken me there. So <sighs> I, I wanted to do something different, and I've really been able to do that with my law degree. Certainly wouldn't have experienced negative 45 degrees on St George's Terrace, eh? No, no. I mean, look, that wind can get cold, but not quite <laughs> that cold. <laughs> Your first graduate job was as associate to Chief Justice Martin of the WA Supreme Court. How did that role help to set you up for the rest of your career? Yeah, so really my judge's associateship introduced me to the profession and all of the different aspects of that. I didn't have any family members that came from law. I didn't have any insider knowledge of how the profession um, worked uh, or any contacts. And so my judge's associateship really gave me the opportunity to see how the profession operated in the context of the courts, which is, of course, one, one context of the profession. So it enabled me to see what a solicitor did and what a barrister did and what a judge did. And that was really eye-opening for me as someone that didn't come from a background that had any lawyers 
um, in it. And in fact, I remember when I went to interview with um, Wayne Martin, and he did always ask us to refer to him by his first name, I just thought that this was a great opportunity to meet a judge and that I possibly would never meet a judge again. That was how I approached this interview. I really just thought I was so lucky to be able to to meet a judge. And I remember my my mum saying at the time that she'd heard him on the radio and that he seemed like a really nice guy. Um, and so that was how I approached that interview, that maybe I'd never get to meet a judge um, again. And I am so lucky that I had the opportunity to um, work with um, the Chief Justice because he was and has continued to be a great mentor to me. He was very interested in admin law as well, so it allowed me to really develop in that area. And he was always open to having in-depth conversations about the matters that we're working on, both in admin law and beyond, but he knew that that was an area of interest of mine. Um, And he also had a commitment to getting out of the city. And um, through working with Wayne, I was able to experience circuit in particular to the remote north um, and see how um, the justice system operated in um, the Kimberley uh, in particular. So my Supreme Court experience was really quite um, formative um, in my ability to see the profession, in my ability to look at different areas of law and analyse them and also to see um, some of how the justice system operated in Western Australia. It's interesting to hear that you had so many wonderful experiences like that during your associateship because yeah. we it seems that judges' associateships are wonderful ways to build your legal research skills, but it's good to know that there are... Some geographical variety yes. involved yes. as well. Yeah, people don't generally see uh, the legal industry as one where travel is a large part, so that's interesting to know that it in fact can be so early on in someone's career. Yeah, um, I would say that judges' associates do sometimes get to do circuit. Not all judges will do circuit, and obviously it's different for court of appeal judges, for example, uh, rather than trial judges, or at least that was my experience at the time. So it is worth asking when you're applying. If you are keen to do a little bit of circuit work, it would be something that you might want to ask the current judges' associate. But actually, I would say... Um, if you are applying for associateships, it is really worthwhile to ring the current judge's associate and ask the types of work that their judge does and things like that, because it can be really quite different across the different judges. And if you're interested in particular areas of law, it can be really useful to know that, Um, as well as to do your own research, of course, into different judges (laughs) and their previous careers um, prior to becoming um, a judge. So I knew that Wayne Martin was very interested in admin law. I also knew that he was an Eagles fan. Those were two of the things that I took into the interview with <laughs> oh, him dear. and I had to We've break it to him. We've got a dedicated Frio fan here. Yes. Well, no, I, was, I had to break it to him that I was a Frio fan. This was something that oh, I had right. to tell him in the interview. Um, and <laughs> he, he was perhaps a little disappointed and, and thankfully he did still um, choose me as his associate. It's, it's it's good to pick your enemies there, I suppose. <laughs> also, cre- credit to you, you follow the opposing football team and he still picked you over the rest, so well done. And I admitted it in the interview. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind if I come across a judge who's an Eagles fan yeah. to throw that in. Disclose all disclose allegiances. It, yeah, if it isn't causing me enough pain already. <laughs> you uh, spent seven years teaching at uh, various universities, at UW, and ANU, and also the University of New South Wales. What made you decide to go to go into academia quite 
early in your career and also after having so many interesting experiences with traveling around Australia or traveling to different parts of Australia and so forth and I suppose getting your hands dirty so to speak why then into teaching which seems like quite distant from that well academia is not just teaching academia is a far more varied uh, career opportunity my initial path into academia came a bit by chance as an offer whereby um, at the time they needed a academic who could research for a major funded environmental law project that related to the Pilbara and they then also needed someone in that faculty to teach admin law. So it was this kind of almost made for me opportunity in that I had such a passion for admin law. I'd also been teaching admin law already um, while I was a judge's associate. I had been doing that um, on the side. And then this major environmental law project was a really interesting funded project that involved, um, for me, really interesting environmental law uh, research. So sort of came my way as this package opportunity almost. And I, I had always thought that maybe academia would be something that interested me. And I'm really glad that I took the opportunity and made the jump. It wasn't necessarily an easy decision. I mean, we talk about, you know, traditional paths. And I suppose at that point, I may have been on a traditional path. I had done a judge's associateship. And then I had um, I was working at a, a major law firm at the time when that opportunity came my way. So it was something a bit different, but I'm really glad that I took the opportunity to do that because it enabled me over several years to um, really consolidate my knowledge in particular areas of law and to do research that that enabled me to do the type of commentary that really gets into that law reform idea and how we change laws, the type of stuff that you don't always perhaps have time to do in practice although that's something that we put some focus on in the EDO which I'll talk a little about a little bit about later so it enabled me to really consolidate my knowledge in particular areas and also to to again do some more travel both in the sense of um, domestically I worked with um, Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory and then I also was given the opportunity to do some work um with Professor Megan Davis, who ended up also being my PhD supervisor, where I travelled with her several times to New York to do work for the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous issues. So just some really unique life experiences that I had by taking that leap of faith. I probably always knew that I wanted to come out the other side at some point and come back to practice because I really liked being a lawyer. But uh, yeah, just really interesting experiences and the opportunity to meet really interesting people in academia, both in law and in other disciplines, build up a research profile in particular areas of law that now really helps me um, as a practitioner to understand the much bigger picture um, that my clients are often facing. That makes sense. Yeah, I can I can see how possibly in you know day-to-day practice you might, as you said, not quite get the chance to see the bigger picture in that way. I suppose that answers my next question a little bit, which was how do you think your teaching experience has been useful now that you've come back to practice? So really it is rounding out yourself as a practitioner. I just think that, um, and I should say that although, um, you know, being an academic is is so much more than being uh, a lecturer. That's all we see, so it's interesting to hear (laughs) all the I I know, there's so much research that goes on and really interesting things that academics do. I did a lot of academic work that was... um, facing towards the profession. So I I did a lot of co-publishing with judges, 
for example, organisations that had judges and barristers and lawyers as members and my academic work would contribute to that in different ways. So there was opportunities for me to work within the profession all the time and I made sure that my academic work was always really connected to the profession. And also the other side of my academic work is that it was always very connected to Indigenous um, communities. But in terms of just the the teaching part of it, which is part of it, um, and I love teaching, I think I always will. I think that being an educator is a life skill. And I think that you use it every day, wherever you are. And for me, that's something that I use when I'm explaining something to a client or mentoring a junior lawyer. It's all about communication and um, thinking about how to get your message across and being passionate about making your knowledge accessible. So I'll always be a lecturer in many ways. Um, I just think it's something that is a lifelong skill that you take with you. As we mentioned earlier, you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the age of 25 and you're basically told at that point to forget about continuing your career. Uh, what what was that like? Yeah, well, look, I should say that the first uh, emergency doctor uh, who turned out not to know a lot about the advances in multiple oh sclerosis or MS treatment told me basically to give up. Really glad that I didn't listen uh, because then I found a wonderful MS specialist uh, neurologist who made me realise that the advances in MS medications in the last 20 years um, have profoundly changed the lives of those of us that have been diagnosed with MS more recently. Um, and I am absolute proof of that. Um, I've now had MS for nearly 10 years, which does give away my age, but anyway. And in that time... <laughs> They're um, lawyers, they can't I've, do maths. <laughs> in that time, gosh, in that time I've been... I've been promoted, I've moved states to take up new job offers, I've won a major teaching award at a top uni, I've submitted a PhD, I've run a few half marathons. You know, MS hasn't stopped me. I suppose that also answers my next question again of how you managed to spite that initial emergency doctor with poor bedside manner, um, how you <laughs> overcame and continued to work with multiple sclerosis. Yeah, I mean, I would actually say, and I'm sure that this is similar of many people's experiences with, with various aspects of life, that my biggest challenge to overcome has been the assumptions that people have about MS and also the stigma associated with the condition. And so I only told very few people about my MS really for many, many years because I was actually worried about the discrimination that I might face within the legal profession, but also more broadly. But in 2018, I decided um, that I would come out publicly as having um, MS and I did that somewhat spectacularly in the Sydney Morning Herald. I, I read and, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I really did that because I wanted other people with MS, particularly those who were newly diagnosed, remembering what it was like for me at the beginning um, to see, to see that I had continued to achieve and, in fact, really had a legal career that has been far more interesting and exciting than even I thought at the very beginning. And so something I'm really proud of now is to be able to mentor newly diagnosed um, MSs, as we call ourselves, uh, including, gosh, lawyers, doctors, 
teachers, occupational therapists, everything, you know, and we're all over the place, um, but often people don't know. Um, so it's something now that I'm quite passionate about raising um, awareness of. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at least one of those half marathons was for fundraising, wasn't it? Or yes. am I on the wrong track? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, did raise a couple of thousand for MS research, obviously uh, supporting MS research so that we can find a cure is something that I'm quite passionate about. We are very lucky that in the last 20 years there has been huge advances in medications to treat MS, but as yet they don't know the cause and they don't know the cure. So there's still quite a lot of research to be done, and particularly because it is a condition that is, I think people don't often realise that it's diagnosed often in young people, particularly in their 20s and 30s. So uh, I was probably young, but not really young for MS um, at 25. Yeah, I think I think I read the average age was about early about 30s. 30. So that's, yeah. I, I had no idea that really surprised and, me. And um, also that uh, it, it affects more women than men and they also don't quite know why. So um, yes, MS research is uh, uh, close to my heart. Mo- moving on to your, uh, your current work at the fantastically named Environmental Defenders Office, which is a, probably the coolest yeah, name of any, cool name. any legal-related organisation I've come across. What's your role there at the moment? Uh, so I'm a senior solicitor at the um, Perth office. So I joined the Environmental Defenders Office in uh, February, late January, late January of this year, after, as you said, several years in, in academia, most recently at the University of New South Wales. And one of the reasons that I was attracted to work for the Environmental Defenders Office is that it has changed significantly uh, towards the end of last year. So the Environmental Defenders Office is now a national community legal centre. We are, in fact, now the largest environmental legal centre in the Southern Hemisphere. And we have eight offices across Australia, as well as reaching out into the Pacific. So I have some colleagues that do international work in the um, Pacific. So the Environmental Defenders Office, uh, previously, um, they existed in different states. So there was a, a separate office in WA in New South Wales. Um, and uh in particular, the New South Wales and Queensland offices were quite large. At the end of last year, they all joined forces and the Environmental Defenders Office has now gone national, which as a lawyer provides a whole heap of different opportunities working for a national community legal centre that has offices in um, different states and territories and really diverse specialisations of my colleagues across the country. I just am always learning about the different things going on um, in different offices. And one of the other really exciting things about working for the Environmental Defenders Office is that, I suppose, as with many community legal centres, we do litigation, but we also do advice work and we also do law reform and I mean that both in the sense of sort of law reform where you contribute to submissions and things like that, but we also do the type of law reform where we might be working with particular clients that are looking to achieve different um, aspects of law reform, which I find really interesting. And then we do community legal education as well. So we have a sort of really diverse practice and that's something that as a person that has a, had a diverse career um, already um, gives me the opportunity to do lots of really interesting work. What what areas do you work across mainly? So, I mean, I, I, I mainly work in environmental 
law in in and environmental law is obviously quite a large area, but then I also have um, particular expertise in Aboriginal heritage. So I okay. also do quite a bit of Aboriginal heritage um, work and that came from my academic work too. That makes sense. And the great thing now is that I do lots of West Australian stuff, but I do lots of work in different um, for different people across the organisation and particularly having worked interstate, I'm able to use that knowledge that I have to feed into um, work that's going on across the organisation. There is a large social justice aspect regarding what you do for a living. What would be the most rewarding matter that you've been involved in at your time at the EDO? So I don't think I could pick a most rewarding <laughs> one, but for me... The most rewarding matters are the ones where I get to work with traditional owners and learn from the way that they see country. And I'm, I'm always learning in my job and um, in particular in relation to traditional owners. And that's such a fantastic part of what I get to do every day. That's what your PhD is in, isn't it? Sea rights of Indigenous owners. Yeah, so my PhD uh, was looking at legal rights and um, governance uh, of Indigenous peoples in sea country in the Northern Territory. And PhDs do have to get quite specific. It didn't. It didn't start off just in the Northern Territory, but it did. It, it, PhDs, a hundred thousand words are less than you think by the end of it. Um, and so that's I, something I, I struggle to imagine. That's, we'll, that's a disgusting yeah. number. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, I actually, I mean, from a, from a student perspective, my interest in sea country uh, issues actually began uh, when I was a student and I was lucky enough to do an Aurora internship. And What's that? I believe the Aurora internships are still around. They're native title internships. And as part of that, I actually went and worked on what became Australia's biggest native title claim to the sea in the Torres Strait. And so that's actually, I mean, that's Queensland, but that's where I started my interest in that area and um, and continued it on. And um, as part of my PhD, I worked with um, a particular community in northeast Arnhem Land um, who have a sea country Indigenous protected area. And that was part of what my PhD was looking at. So Again, wanting to get out of the office, um, was able to do some empirical research where I was interviewing people to actually understand how law operates on the ground rather than just reading it. What should students do if they themselves are interested in pursuing a career in environmental law? What should they look into? I mean, look, my first thing would be to contact the EDO and come and do some, you know, volunteer work. So we have quite a few student volunteers and they do some really interesting um, tasks for us. Environmental law is also a really diverse area in that it comes into lots of different parts of the law. So I started off my environmental law career at what is now Ashurst. I actually worked in the Sydney office, so I did predominantly uh, environmental litigation in the Land and Environment Court, which is quite different to the setup in Western Australia. So there's lots of different ways to get into environmental law, but I would definitely encourage people to do the option unit at university, obviously, and to yeah think about doing some some volunteer work at an organisation like the EDO. What 
kind of opportunities do you have for student volunteers? What, what can they be doing? Yeah, so all of our offices have um, a volunteer program. You can make contact with the EDO and obviously we, we have limited capacity, so we do have to, to monitor that to some degree, but we often have volunteer opportunities available. And look, the volunteers get to do lots of interesting work, including uh, plenty of research for us. So there's often research tasks on the go. Uh, as well as assisting us with any other sort of matters that we've got going on in the office. And it could even include, uh, for example, I actually had someone in the Sydney office helping me with some research work the other day. So it could even include some volunteer work that might not necessarily be related to the um, WA office. Or sometimes I might be doing work that relates to another office. So it could be um, interstate stuff going on. We as an organisation prior to COVID were quite used to operating on Zoom because we operate by Zoom all the time as a national organisation. The transition perhaps actually hasn't been so great for us because we were so used to doing those kind of meetings with interstate colleagues all oh, right i'm just i'm just impressed that we found someone who knew about zoom pre-covid yeah before it's, we introduced we knew about you, zoom yeah. before it was cool at the edo and the funny thing is that i gave many of my lawyer friends zoom lessons at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> i was ahead of the game <laughs> fantastic i suppose finally what what advice would you give to a graduating student now whatever they might wherever they might be interested in going, whatever challenges they might have, what what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I probably have two pieces of advice. One relates to what we started talking about at the beginning, and that is to say, don't believe that there's some traditional path in law. Think big and do the things that you're passionate about. Uh, whatever that may be, don't don't feel that there is some path that you absolutely have to follow. And the second one is one that I've come to a little bit later, probably took a few years for me to realise this one, and that is to make sure that you have a life outside the law, whether that be when you're at uni or once you start working. I definitely have had times when I was too focused on work, and I think it's really important to remember that you are a person outside of being a lawyer and that you have lots of other things to contribute to society. And one of the most enjoyable things that I've done in recent years is become the president of a community running club. It was really fun and I got to meet lots of great people and I think that that's probably something that I've come to a little bit more in recent years, that actually there is a real importance in having a life outside the law as well as having oh, a good that's, that's a fantastic thing to remember, yeah. Yeah, that was and a brilliant answer, actually. Well done. We've asked this people, a couple of people, the same question, and that was that was far enough. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for taking part in this interview today, Lauren. Yes, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks also to our sponsors at College of Law. Stay tuned for more episodes of Under the Wig in the next few weeks.